She possessed an energy that could reach out through speakers and connect with anyone. Even though she suffered in her teens and the demons of her past still haunted her well into her fame, she was fearless on stage and is today regarded as one of the most iconic figures of rock and roll history. From her eccentric style and personality to her soulful and powerful voice, Janis Joplin seemed destined to become a legend. Her fast-living lifestyle would serve to solidify her legendary status. Unfortunately, it would also be a lifestyle that would ultimately lead to her death. And despite her short career, she would leave a legacy for herself and the hippie movement of the 1960s. She challenged the norms of what it meant to be a woman and was therefore misunderstood nearly as often as she was hailed. But as time has passed, she's become less misunderstood and, as it should have always been, the outcast from the southeast Texas town of Port Arthur has become almost exclusively hailed. She would pave the way for many artists, but, unable to escape her own past, she would find herself another unfortunate member of the 27 Club. Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, the eccentric, and the unique. I am your host, Jason Moore Harden, and today we are delving into the life of Janis Joplin and the last album she left behind, Pearl. You are what you settle for. End quote. The girl who would go on to become the great Janis Joplin was born on January 19, 1943, in Port Arthur, Texas, as Janis Lynn Joplin. She was a happy, healthy, and creative young girl who was an achiever from early on. Growing up, she had remarkable motor skills, which her parents, Dorothy and Seth, would show off to their friends at dinner parties. Artistically inclined, Janice would often paint and write throughout her childhood. Impressed with her drive and early talents, Janice's mother built a small stage for her productions, which the neighborhood kids would join and bring into life. Unfortunately, elementary school would arguably be the last time Joplin felt accepted in her small town. Port Arthur was racially segregated during this time, and because Janice accepted people of all colors, she was soon pegged as being a nigger lover. The fact that religion was the strongest political force in town, and add to that the long-established political parties were quite eager in their exclusion of minorities, she did not find comfort in her hometown for the most part. This conservative world did not suit her, and as her eccentricities continued to develop and emerge, likely as an act of rebellion as well as discovering herself, the more she became an outcast. Music became a salvation when it entered her life while in high school, when a friend of hers introduced her to blues singer Bessie Smith. Though Janice was too shy to yet sing in public, she would listen to Bessie for hours, over time learning how to imitate her vocal style. She would later talk affectionately about Bessie Smith, saying, She showed me the air and taught me how to feel it. She's the reason I started singing, really. 
Her interest in poetry, reading, art, and music made her more of a social pariah than she already was by this point. But, in the wake of her rejection, she sought out a new crowd and she involved herself with beatniks in town, most notably Jim Langdon, a jazz musician. By becoming a part of this adventurous group, the myth of Janice as a bad girl deepened. Often feeling depressed and uncertain about herself, life would not become easier after her beatnik friends graduated, leaving her exposed to the ridicule and nastiness of her schoolmates. They made fun of her chunky figure, untidy outfits, and her lack of makeup. The allegedly crude manner in which she carried herself led to tasteless rumors about her sexuality. After her senior year of high school, she was seeing a psychologist as a way to deal with the nasty treatment she'd received by her peers. She would go on to attend Lamar College and eventually the University of Texas, though neither did anything to boost the ego of the already insecure teenager. At Lamar, she was further ostracized for her behavior and her intelligence. And at the University of Texas, she would face public humiliation when she was voted the ugliest man on campus by the fraternities of 1963. After this travesty, she left the university and hitchhiked to San Francisco with a friend, eager to start a new chapter of her life, though the past would not be easy to forget. During one of her later interviews, she said, they laughed me out of class, out of town, out of the state. In San Francisco, Janice had finally found the counterculture paradise she was looking for in the Haight-Ashbury area. She would also find her musical footing and soon join the band Big Brother and a Holding Company and began playing shows. It was through these concerts that she befriended other bands such as The Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane, and Country Joe and the Fish. The San Francisco environment of drugs, free love, and rock and roll was exactly what she'd been searching for, and she embraced it fully. After a concert she and the band had in the city, she was approached by a Paul Rothschild of Electra Records, well-known as the producer for, amongst others, The Doors. He liked her style and voice and offered her a record contract with Electra Records under the stipulation that they, meaning Electra Records, were to put together a group for her and shape the style of music they considered was on the brink of becoming the next big thing. After some heavy deliberation, she opted to stay with her band and not sign with Elektra. Big Brother and the Holding Company instead signed with a smaller label, Mainstream Records, where they felt more in control of their music. Suddenly, her music career was gaining more traction. She felt embraced by her band, referring to them as the family she never had. However, she did continue to write letters to her family back in Texas whenever she was able to, a tradition she would hang on to until her death. Her drug use, as many may know, would become legendary. But the first time she did acid, it was done without intention. She was at a party on California Street in downtown San Francisco when someone began passing around a bottle of sparkling wine called Cold Duck. People were taking sips and small chugs from the bottle, but when it arrived to Janice, she took a huge swig. 
and after she swallowed a mouthful, someone nearby commented that she was obviously intent on getting really high and messed up. She didn't understand what they meant, but was then told that the bottle of wine was laced with around 68 hits of acid. She immediately ran to the bathroom and attempted to make herself throw up. It goes without saying that she got very high. But the night did also bring on an epiphany. Later that evening, she went along with some others who were at the party to a concert at the Fillmore where Otis Redding was set to perform. Whether because of the drugs in her system or simply because she was at the right place at the right time, the concert had a profound influence on her, and thereafter, she saw where she wanted to go with her music. Four years after being ridiculed at the University of Texas in 1967, Janis Joplin was one of the top performers in San Francisco. However, she was still uncertain about herself and her talents. It also didn't help that most of the articles concerning her and the band focused more on her drinking and drug habits than it did her talent. Soon she realized she could use this attention to her advantage and began playing up the role of the shocking artist. She once stated that, Maybe my audience can enjoy my music more if they think I'm destroying myself. Despite this realization, she never attempted to flaunt the classic ego of the quote-unquote lead singer. Instead, she wanted to be a part of the band, an equal. That same year came a turning point. Big Brother and the holding company played what would become the historic Monterey International Pop Festival. Quote, Don't compromise yourself. You're all you got. End quote. From Friday, June 16th to Sunday, June 18th, the Monterey International Pop Festival was held at the Monterey County Fairgrounds in Monterey, California. The festival is now remembered for being the first major appearances by the Jimi Hendrix Experience, The Who, and Ravi Shankar, as well as the first large-scale public performance of Janis Joplin and the introduction of Otis Redding to a mass American audience. Filmmaker D.A. Pennybaker wanted to make a movie about the festival and tried to get the bands to sign releases right before going up on stage. Many bands and managers refused, wanting to keep the San Francisco scene to themselves and not allow it to be exploited by Los Angeles and thus Hollywood. However, Big Brother and the Holding Company would see it as a possibility to break through when the makers of the documentary told Janice that if she signed over the rights to the footage, they would be able to play a second show on Saturday in addition to the one they had played on Friday. The filmmakers recognized that she had something unique and deemed her critical for the documentary to be a success. This culminated in her and the band having a long discussion that turned into an argument. In the end, they signed and played the second show. Joplin's talents were undeniable on video, and the second concert proved to be vital in making the band more famous. After the Monterey Festival, the possibilities that lay in front of her became more apparent as her career continued to ascend. 
Around this time, she wrote home to tell her mother that she finally had a tranquil day to write about all the good news surrounding her life. She had moved into a house in the country with the band and was loving every moment of it. She felt that she belonged with the band and was delighted to read about herself in magazines and newspapers since the performance at the festival. She could tell that she was getting closer to becoming a star, but it was also losing its meaning the closer she came to it. Nonetheless, whatever becoming a star entailed, she felt ready. When Janice was 25 years old, Big Brother and the Holding Company signed with Columbia Records. She could hardly believe it. The outcast girl who couldn't fit in growing up in Texas was now staring ahead at remarkable prospects and a career. It was, as she wrote in her letter to her mother, incredible. February 20th, 1968. She wrote to her mother to tell her that the band's album, Cheap Thrills, had gone gold in a mere three days. Then, at the Rose Bowl Stadium, where they were set to play to an audience who had not been allowed to get near them by the police, broke through the barricades and suddenly Janis Joplin experienced what it was to truly be a star. Adoring fans pulled at her clothing and her beads while they chanted her name. She loved every moment of it. Her eccentric personality, as well as the rock and roll lifestyle she was leading, attracted the attention of the media and she embraced the image of the heavy-drinking, drug-using mama. This became affirmed when the alcohol brand Southern Comfort, which was her favorite, sent her a lynx coat and a matching hat for her unintentional advertising of their product. Though Big Brother and the holding company were getting more famous, tensions were growing as Joplin became the main focus of the band, which did not sit all too well with the other members. This was also around the same time she began to dabble with heroin. Soon enough, the split between her and the band became unavoidable. They felt that she was acting like she was better than them and they were continually struggling with the fact that she was now the focal point of most of the articles. Soon, their inner turmoil led to Janice leaving the band and embarking on a solo career. Quote, being an intellectual creates a lot of questions and no answers. You can fill your life up with ideas and still go home lonely. All you really have that really matters are feelings. That's what music is to me. End quote. Upon pursuing a solo career, she felt pressured to live up to the legend she had already forged. She had left a famous band in order to pursue something she could only hope would pay off and felt that she had to prove that it was the right decision. And not least, by leaving Big Brother, she left the only place she'd ever felt truly at home since before the ostracism began in Port Arthur. The new project was called Janis Joplin and the Cosmic Blues Band. Despite achieving something unprecedented when they played Albert Hall in London, where they managed to bring the crowd to their feet and dancing in the aisles, she learned that it wasn't easy to be a band leader. 
Not always able to find the right tone or groove with the players, new members would come and go, and with that came stress and more pressure to succeed. When she was on stage and everything was grooving and going well, all was right with the world. But as soon as she stepped off stage, she would be left with herself. On stage, I make love to 25,000 different people. Then I go home alone, she would say. And to deal with this loneliness, she would hit the bottle hard, as well as the drugs. She rarely used heroin before a concert as it was the wrong kind of energy for the shows. But after the concert, it was exactly what she wanted and would begin doing it on a regular basis. While with Big Brother and the holding band, bass player Peter Albin wanted no part of the drugs. So while she was with them, the drug use among her and the other band members was kept hidden for the most part. But with the Cosmic Blues Band, with no one to hide from, she was free to do all the drugs she wanted to. And unfortunately, things quickly got out of hand. She had heard about Woodstock and considered it to be the next Monterey Festival moment for her and the new project, so she made sure that they were on the lineup. On the video footage from Woodstock, she is clearly high, but despite this, she still manages to deliver what is still considered one of her best performances and one that would make its mark on music history. It was a dark time, however. The Cosmic Blues Band would soon dissipate, and she took it to be her fault rather than to blame the real culprit, alcohol and drug abuse. She was in a nasty downward spiral of drugs. It had gone from something to do for fun and something to take the edge off to something that dominated her life. She tried several times to kick the habit and would manage to do so for short periods at a time. On one such occasion, she went on a trip to Brazil, where she met the man who would become the love of her life, David Niehaus. After the trip, the two of them returned to California in love. Janice would remain off heroin for a while after this, but her use had become a way for her to escape the pain, which made it difficult to stay clean. Well, David traveled away on a trip at some point, and she began shooting up again. And when he returned, he found that she was back on the heroin, leaving him to feel that he had no other choice than to leave her. She offered him to become her manager as a way to entice him to stay, a tempting offer. Nevertheless, he knew that he couldn't deal with the heroin and ultimately chose to leave. After the breakup, she managed once again to kick the habit for roughly six months. She wrote to her family that she was really doing well, that she had a small band and was enjoying her life. She felt that the band was in real sync with her. They paid attention to her changes, particularly when she wanted to work the crowd or make impromptu changes live on stage. She was much more confident than she had been in the past when it came to music. In her personal life, on the other hand, she still referred to David as her lost love and would write to him that she still hoped that he would come back to her now that she was clean. Quote, The more you live, the less you die. End quote. Recorded between July 27th and October 4th, 1970, 
Pearl would be Janice's final album. It was produced by Paul Rothschild, who had approached her about signing to his label Electra several years earlier. It would also be her most polished and arguably most accomplished album. The working relationship between she and Rothschild was great and her vocal spectrum would shine throughout the recording. Afterwards, he referred to her as a producer's dream. The new band, the Full Tilt Boogie Band, were the same band of musicians who accompanied her on the Festival Express, a concert tour by train of Canada in the summer of 1970. She was ecstatic to have finally gathered a group of musicians that adequately understood her. I can tell those cats what to do and they'll do it, she once said excitedly. Many of the songs which would appear on the album had in fact been recorded on stages across Canada two months before she and the band started their Los Angeles recording sessions at Sunset Sound Recorders. A few of the nine tracks were written by others, including Chris Christopherson and Howard Tate. However, all would be personally approved and arranged by Janice. She sang on all the tracks except Buried Alive in the Blues, which was actually a backing track which she never got the opportunity to record vocals over. The song's writer, Nick Gravenite, was offered the opportunity to sing on it as a tribute to her, but he turned down the offer, and so the song ended up as an instrumental. Janice's final session took place on Thursday, October 1st, after a break of several days. An a cappella version of Mercedes-Benz would be the last song she'd ever record. Now she had replaced heroin with drinking, and though it wasn't the perfect solution, most of her friends reasoned that it at least wouldn't kill her as suddenly as heroin. Unfortunately, Janice had begun to slip back into drugs again, and on October 4th, 1970, she overdosed. She was found the next morning lying by the side of the bed in her hotel room, deceased. By coincidence, or some stronger energy, if you're so inclined, David Niehaus sent a telegram the night she died, writing, Really miss you. Things aren't the same alone. Can meet you in Kathmandu anytime, but late October is the best season. Love you, Mama, more than you know. The telegram would be discovered at the front desk of the hotel the morning after her death. In her last letter to her family, she wrote, Dear family, I'm awfully sorry to be such a disappointment to you, but I really do think there's an awfully good chance I won't blow it this time. There's really nothing more I can say right now. Guess I'll write more when I have more news. Until then, address all criticism to the above address. And please, believe that you can't possibly want for me to be a winner more than I do. Love, Janice. The album Pearl was named after the nickname Janice had encouraged friends to call her. It never caught on, but she felt a connection with it nevertheless. The album would be released three months after her death and receive high praise charted number one in several countries, and would go on to sell millions of copies. It is also ranked on several lists of best albums of all time, including Rolling Stone magazine's list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. The track Me and Bobby McGee remains to be her biggest single.
She made adjustments to her will just two days before her death, giving most of her wealth to her parents, while some additional wealth went to her siblings. What some, however, attributed to her foresight concerning her own death is the fact that she had $2,500 put aside for her friends to throw a party in her honor. The will specified that 200 people could hold an all-night gathering at her favorite pub, so that, as she put it, my friends can get blasted after I'm gone. I'll end this episode with one final quote from the Queen of Psychedelic Soul, Janice Pearl Joplin. To be true to myself, to be the person that was on the inside of me and not play games, that's what I'm trying to do mostly in the whole world, is not bullshit myself and not bullshit anybody else. End quote. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Nemoa Harden. We here at House of Words ask that you please consider helping to make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash house of words. Until next time, keep turning those pages. House of Words is written and produced by Christo M. Sanchez. Narrated and edited by me, Jason Nemore Harden. And music by Creature Nine and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Christo M. Sanchez and Jason Nemore Harden.